Welcome back, everyone, to the Zach Evans Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us as we discuss the problem of suffering. This is the question of all questions in a very real sense. It's the issue that every major worldview, religion, and philosophy tries to answer. Why is there suffering? And for our template, we are going to use 1 Peter, which mentions suffering a lot, I believe about three times per chapter. And we're going to explore what the Apostle Peter has to say about suffering. And I believe there are so many misunderstandings, so many things that people think they know that they don't really know about suffering. And the Bible gives us an amazing, comprehensive, intelligible understanding of why suffering exists, where it comes from, what it means, and what the implications of suffering are in our life and in the world more broadly. And this topic will be split up into two weeks, part one and part two. And in the first part, this week, we're going to discuss the reality of suffering, and then we're going to discuss the reason for suffering. And then in the following week, part two, we're going to discuss the response to suffering, the rewards of suffering, and the riddance of suffering. But this week really sets the stage, and so I hope that you'll really give your attention to this, as there's a lot in here that can be used to help other people in your life understand why bad things happen. It's a difficult thing to work through, but I believe that there is so much value in really examining this problem at a deep level. So we'll get into answering the question, why do bad things happen? Why is there suffering in the world? However you'd like to phrase it as we discuss the topic, the problem of suffering. Please make sure that you are sharing the podcast with other people, as we'd like to have as many people blessed by it as we can. Leave us five stars and a great review. And thank you so much, as always, for taking time in your day to listen to this podcast. I pray that it is a blessing. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 5. In verse 10, Peter says, But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, establish, strengthen, settle you. Notice he says, after that ye have suffered a while. He'll make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. I want to talk a little bit about the problem of suffering this essentially is the question. This is the question. This is the most difficult and pervasive apologetical question when we defend the Christian faith, is why is there suffering? Why does God allow suffering? Why do good things, why do bad things happen to good people? However the question is phrased, it's basically the same issue, which is why is there suffering and how do we reconcile, for example, we're not going to deal with this aspect of it specifically, but how do we reconcile the existence of an allegedly good God and a universe that is so filled with suffering and sometimes unexplained and seemingly unwarranted, needless suffering? Now, I can't cover the whole spectrum of this, but I want to deal with the issue of suffering through the lens of what Peter talks about here in his first letter. So we'll talk a little bit this morning about the problem of suffering. One of the major themes of 1 Peter is suffering. It's basically one of the themes of that letter. And that makes sense when you consider the state of the early church. So in the first century, Christianity was not popular. <laughs> it was growing, but it wasn't popular, and it wasn't popular with those in power. And Christians experienced an incredible degree of suffering relative to other generations. And we suffer persecution today, but it's of a very mild variety. Um, our lives, by and large, are not threatened. That is not true across the world, but it is true in the Western world, by and large. There are places today where Christians are being killed just because they're Christians. Um, ISIS, for example, was crucifying Christians, crucifying Christian women, beheading them, simply because they were Christians. And so it still happens, but the first century Christians experienced more than their fair share. The Webster's 1828 defines suffering as this, to feel or bear what is painful, disagreeable or distressing either to the body or the mind. The word suffering appears 13 times in Peter's letter. That's almost three times per chapter. So he's talking about suffering a good deal. 
And what Peter does here is he gives us a proper understanding of suffering as well as some hope in the fact that he peeks through the curtain to some extent to glimpse what's on, glimpse what's on the other side of this life. I'm going to give you five thoughts. We'll see how many we can get through. We're going to go through them in sequence. I don't ordinarily encourage people to take notes. I'd rather you just listen. But if you want to take notes, this might be appropriate. The first point I want to make or the first topic I want to deal with is the reality of suffering. The reality of suffering. Uh, look at 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 19. He says, For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, notice that, called to suffer, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, steps of suffering, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. One more verse. Who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin, sins should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. So first I want to deal with the reality of suffering. Remember this statement. The reality of suffering is that suffering is a universal existential reality. And every major worldview understands this, not just Christianity. Every major world religion is centered around the problem of suffering. It is the issue. It is the question. And that makes sense when we understand from a biblical perspective that the fundamental reality of the world changed in the garden through the fall of man. Where suffering became uh, ingratiated into our reality and we know it shouldn't be there. The fact that we ask the question points to the fact that we are almost saying, suffering, what are you doing here? Like it's trespassing in our world, in a sense. And we might ask, well, why do we feel that way? Why don't we just, you know, on its face, accept suffering and say, ah, you know, it's a part of life. We all buck against the reality of suffering. Why is that? Because we realize that it's trespassing in God's creation. We realize that, and unfortunately, we're the ones who left the door unlocked. So let me say this, secondly, there is no mode of being, no way of living, no way of thinking, no way of organizing your life or administrating your schedule or your person. There is no mode of being that fully avoids or eliminates suffering. The purpose of Buddhism is to eliminate suffering, is to achieve nirvana. That's the idea. And so what are you doing? And, and the idea there in Buddhism is that the reason you suffer is because of your desires. So then the only way to eliminate suffering is to eliminate your desires. If you eliminate desire, you eliminate suffering. Because if you don't want anything, then how could you suffer? And the idea is that the, the Buddha achieved nirvana. And the, uh, the strange thing about that is that he didn't stay there. The legend, the idea is that after achieving nirvana, the state of nothingness, in a sense, he came back. He came back to pull other people out of their suffering, which I think is a fundamental contradiction maybe of the religion itself. But it does speak to the pervasiveness of the problem, that even the Buddha, as legend would have it, once he achieved the state of non-suffering, left it voluntarily to help others get out of suffering. <laughs> That's how strong the reality of suffering is. A fundamental question that we ask is, why did this happen to me? Why did this happen to me? Anytime something bad, difficult, unfortunate, or tragic happens, we ask that question. Why did this happen to me? And I think what that betrays is the fact that we don't think suffering is a certainty. We don't think it's a certainty. We're like, wait, what are you doing here? What are you doing in my life? Right? You should not be here. But the thing that we are failing to understand is that suffering is a part of reality. And that everybody who indwells reality will suffer. Period. End of story. There is no no suffering option. And there's no way to organize your life that gets rid of all suffering. There's no way to do that. There's no way for you to live that eliminates suffering. But I believe that that question, why did this happen to me, can be answered. It can at least be answered to a degree. And that's the thing is we just say things like trust God and have faith. That's true. That, that's absolutely right. But trust and faith are based on knowledge to some extent. 
and I can't believe and trust in nothing, right? If I'm trusting in God, I'm trusting in His goodness, His trustworthiness, His faithfulness, and those things have to be founded on something substantive. And so sometimes what helps is to beef up the substance under which we explain, okay, here's how these things are possible. Here's why these things happen. I'm going to give you a few different reasons why suffering is a reality and a few reasons why they happen, all right? There's three possible reasons for suffering. The first one is this. It could be a result of chastisement. Suffering could be a result. The reason why it could be in my life is because I'm being chastised by God. Chastisement is God's punishment of the saved. So it could be that I'm saved and God is punishing me for wrongdoing. 1 Peter 2.20, the first part, he says, What glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? So he says, sometimes you do something stupid and you suffer. And that's not a virtue, he says. So you're not being persecuted for well-doing, you're being punished for wrongdoing. So it could be the reason why suffering has entered into my life is because I am being punished by God for wrongdoing. Hebrews 12, 6 says, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth, notice this, every son whom he receiveth. Every son. All right? But what is the nature and purpose of this chastisement? Chastisement is temporary punishment for the purpose of correcting behavior and restoring the relationship. That's what chastisement is. Chastisement is compared to a parent's discipline of their child, obviously. A good father or parent or mother corrects his children's bad behavior. They may give a verbal warning first, as God has given us the scriptures, and through preaching. But if that verbal warning is not heeded, discipline is in order. So one of the things I should do when suffering enters into my life, I should ask myself, is this the chastisement of God? I should examine myself for sin, for willful rebellion against the commands of God. So God in that case has every right. In fact, he would not be good. Here's what we don't understand. He would not be good if he did not bring suffering into my life as a result of my sins. So he must chastise at some point, and that is an expression of his goodness. It does not disprove it. It proves it. If you do not chastise your children, you are not a good parent. You are a bad parent, and you are a facilitator of their evils. God does not participate in our evil schemes. He corrects them, and he disciplines them. So I have to ask myself, when I'm suffering, is this because of sin? That's one possible reason, all right? Another possible reason is it's the wrath of God. So it could be God's chastisement. This would apply to the saved. It could be the wrath of God. This applies to the lost. This is God's punishment of the unsaved. John 3.36 says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. All right, the wrath of God is exclusively for the non-believer, and it's different than chastisement in its nature and purpose. Here's what's different about that. This is interesting. The wrath of God accumulates over a longer period of time and then is poured out as a vessel of destruction. This is in stark contrast to chastisement, which is temporary punishment for the purpose of correcting behavior and restoring the relationship. Remember that God said that the iniquity of the Amorites, he said this to Abraham, was not yet full. He allowed their iniquity to fill up, and then what did he do? Then he poured out wrath on them. Why? For the purpose of correcting them? No. The time of correction had passed, and the wrath of God was now poured out as a means of destruction and judgment. They had Melchizedek. They had witnesses of the truth the entire time. They had a priesthood in their time where they could have come to the knowledge of God if they so chose, but they did not. And so their iniquity filled up the wrath of God and was poured out as a means of judgment. God is not a father to the lost and does not punish them as such. But like Jesus said to the Pharisees, the lost are of their father, the devil. In this case, Satan is a very permissive dad. He allows you to do as you please with little consequences at first. But God is the judge. He's the judge of the wicked and will only put up with their sin for so long before he pours out his long accumulating wrath on the lost. So it could be God's chastisement if I'm saved. It could be the wrath of God if I am lost. But then thirdly, and I think that this covers the vast majority of the rest of it, it could be the natural consequences of sin in general. 
It could be the natural consequences of sin in general. What do I mean? There are natural consequences of sin that apply to the saved and the lost, irrespective of their position before God. Okay? If you get into a fight and somebody punches you in the face, God is not going to protect you from the pain because you're saved. You're like, why did this happen to me? Well, because you got into a fight. Like, that's why it happened. And pain is a part of reality. And you're like, well, why does pain exist? Because we live in a synchronous world, right? Okay, so it's a natural consequence of sin in general. For example, death is the most obvious example here. Unless I'm taken up, I will die. And for me, this is not the chastisement of God. Now, it could be the manner of my death or the timing of my death could be a form of chastisement. We see that with, with um, uh, Ananias and Sapphira. So they were chastised on the spot by the Holy Spirit. You're going to lie to the Holy Ghost? They dropped dead. That was God's chastisement, okay? But here's the thing. If they had been open and forthright and honest about their offering and lived to be 120, they still would have died. And that death would not have been a function of God's chastisement. Why? Because it's not directly related to unconfessed sin or unrepented of sin. And it's also not an expression of the wrath of God because they are saved but it would be a natural consequence of sin in general, which is that because we live in a world that is full of sin, because we have sinful bodies, they will expire. Okay, so in this case, uh, I'll give you another example. So uh, lung cancer because of smoking. Okay, so let's say somebody smokes for 20, 30 years, they get saved, 20 years later they develop lung cancer. Is that the chastisement of God? No. They've repented of that sin. They have, they've been forgiven of that sin, let's say. Is it the wrath of God? No, they're saved. Is it the natural consequences of sin in general? Yeah. Because we live in a sin-cursed world, these actions have consequences. And it may not be directly from God. It might be directly because of the action itself. Does that make sense? So the natural consequences of sin can exist with or without the chastisement or the wrath of God. In some cases, my suffering can even be the result of someone else's sin. So you imagine somebody like who's a drunk driver who runs into somebody else who's not doing something. Why did this happen? Because of the natural consequences of sin in general. Because someone sinned. That's why. If no one sinned, it would not have happened. There's a sin somewhere. <laughs> There's a sin somewhere that caused this issue. Cain killed Abel. It's the first thing that happens after we leave the garden is Cain kills Abel. Why did God allow this? To... No, no, no. Cain killed Abel. God didn't kill anyone. Cain killed Abel. It was the natural consequence of Adam's sin that allowed for a bad person to do something bad to a good person. Bad things happen to good people and both suffer as a result. That's only possible because of the natural consequences of sin in general. All right, so... Suffering, therefore, can be the direct result of doing wrong and may manifest itself as the chastisement of God, the wrath of God, or the natural consequences of sin in general. That's the reality, all right? But here's the next part of the reality. This is the one we don't like to talk about. Suffering can be a direct result of doing good. So not only can suffering be a direct result of doing bad, suffering can be a direct result of doing good. Look at 1 Peter 2, 20, the second half of the verse. But if, when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. So Peter says, sometimes you will suffer because you did the right thing. We don't really believe that. We believe if we played our cards just right, we wouldn't suffer at all. Incorrect. The most perfect, the only perfect person who ever existed suffered. And he suffered to the point of death. He was murdered. He was betrayed. He was beaten. He was despised. He was falsely accused. A bunch of things that have never happened to you and I, who are far less righteous <laughs> than he was. So righteousness does not exclude suffering. Sometimes righteousness causes suffering. The example that Peter gives here is Jesus. For even hereunto were ye called... Whoa, you were called to take it patiently. What do I do when I suffer? You take it. You take it. You take the suffering. How do you take it? Patiently. You take it patiently. Why? 
because you can rest in the fact that the suffering is not a result of God's chastisement. It's not a result of the wrath of God. It's not even a result of the natural consequences of sin in general, although it is in a sense. It is a direct result of the fact that you did the right thing. And so what are you doing? You are walking, he says, in the steps of Jesus. You ever read the book, In His Steps by Sheldon? If you haven't, you should. It's one of the best-selling books of all time. And one of the things that it intimates is the fact that all of these people, it's where the what would Jesus do movement came from, although that kind of went a little different. But it, the, the idea is this, this verse, which is, what would life be like if we literally just did whatever Jesus would do in each situation? That's the premise of the book. And it's an incredible book. But part of what would happen if I just did what Jesus would do in every situation is I would suffer. He says, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, an example of suffering, that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. He committed himself to God in his suffering and said, God, I'm suffering, and I'm suffering not for my own sin, not for my own mistakes. I have done nothing wrong. I have fulfilled all righteousness. So all I can do, God, is commit myself to you and take it. So sometimes you suffer as a direct result of doing well. Suffering for well-doing can be from four different sources. There's four different sources of your suffering that can be a result of doing well. The first one is God himself. Sometimes God inflicts suffering on those who do good as a mechanism to amplify the effect of their goodness. We don't like that. Paul went to the throne of God three times and said, take this from me, take this from me, take this from me. And God said, no, you're going to suffer, but I'm going to give you grace and that grace will be sufficient. Here's why. Because I'm going to allow you, like he told Ananias, I'm going to show you how many things you must suffer for my sake. And through that suffering, the direct result of that suffering is more goodness, not less goodness. Because you suffer, because I allow you to suffer, the effect of your well-doing will compound. Now that's something that we don't want to accept. There's another example, which would be Job. Imagine... What, what is the implication of Job's suffering long-term? It's been the comfort of billions of people. Billions of people have been comforted as a result of Job's suffering. God allowed him to suffer that he might exponentially increase the effect of his goodness. All right, another source of this suffering, if I do well, this is more obvious, is the world. The Bible calls this persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So sometimes I suffer for well-doing from the world as a direct result of that well-doing because the world is persecuting me. All right, number three, it could be Satan. Now, we give Satan way too much credit for things. He's one being in one place at one time. His infrastructure is everywhere, and that's true. Ephesians 6, 11, and 12 talk about this. But the wiles of the devil are obviously in full effect. He's sending his fiery darts at the righteous to try and stop their advance. And if he can do that through suffering then he'll be very pleased to do so. Or, number four, we mentioned this earlier, it could be the natural consequences of sin in general. So just because you are doing good doesn't mean that somehow you are transcending your existence in a sinful world. You still live in a sinful world where bad things happen. Doing the right thing can bring about suffering. Read the Fox's Book of Martyrs. These are people who did right by definition. And it's called the Fox's Book of Martyrs. Um, people say things like, well, I mean, I did right and look what happened, right? It's like, okay, well, you are seeing the short-term effect of well-doing, but what you're not seeing is the long-term effect of well-doing. And so this is what it means in part to walk by faith and not by sight. You cannot just perform whatever action you deem will create the obvious effect that you desire, You have to walk in the steps of Christ. You have to walk in purposeful well-doing. 
and you have to trust that even if the immediate result of well-doing is suffering, that God would not call you to do something that in the long term would not mean an increase of goodness in the world. By definition. All right, let's move on. So suffering can be a result of doing good. Lastly, this is something also we do not like to talk about, we don't believe is true, could be an expression of the point that sin can be a result of the general consequences of sin. But suffering can be a result of time and chance. Suffering can be a result of time and chance. And here's what I mean, is that sometimes things just happen, and there's not a moral reason, there's not a spiritual reason, there could be a spiritual implication, there's not a spiritual cause. Okay, your car breaks down, your water pump goes out. There are not, most likely there could be, I'm not saying there's not, probably demons are not tinkering with your car in the driveway. Could be. People say things like, Satan's really trying to get me down. Satan's been after me hard this week. Really, what happened? HVAC went out. Satan broke your HVAC? This is, are you, are you, did you see him do it? How do you know it was him? He left his calling card. Like, how do you know it was the devil directly? Here's the thing. HVACs go out. What causes them to go out? Okay, yes, we live in a synchronous world, but also sometimes they just go out. Time. I don't know. Chance. One in so many go out. It happened to you. It happens to everybody. Water pumps go out. It doesn't mean you're being chastised. doesn't mean you're being persecuted. <laughs> it could be that. Probably not. Maybe your atheist neighbor is putting sugar in your gas tank. I don't know. I doubt that. Sometimes things just happen. In a six-month span, in our home, our entire kitchen was destroyed and had to be replaced. Our water heater was destroyed, had to be replaced, along with part of our hallway. Our dishwasher died, and our HVAC all had to be replaced in a six-month period. And then our entire house flooded last year in March. So why did that happen? Well, I can tell you why that happened, okay? And uh, his name is Mil Hayduck, and uh, it was his fault. And uh, the devil was controlling his tiny Czechoslovakian fingers, and it is what it is. But sometimes things just happen. All right, let's move on. So the reality of suffering, we'll pick up here next week. What do we mean? Suffering is a fact of life. Suffering is universal. Listen to this. If Jesus could not avoid suffering, neither can you. If Jesus did not come to this earth to not suffer, then apparently the purpose of life is not not suffering. We think the purpose of life is to mitigate our suffering. Wrong. The purpose of life is to do right, regardless of the suffering it may bring. Committing ourselves to God in faith that the end result is increased goodness. That's the purpose. It's not to lessen the chances that I might suffer, but to increase righteousness in the world regardless of the cost. For now, there's no life without suffering. I could attempt to limit it, and I can many times, listen to this, choose why I'm suffering, but I cannot fully avoid it. And I need to come to grips with the fact that suffering is a reality I will have to face time and time again in my life because there's no mode of being that avoids it because suffering is a universal reality. You should, you should mitigate or eliminate unnecessary suffering. Right? There's no reason for you to suffer above what is absolutely necessary. But the point is that, like, for example, I mean, if your leg is broken, you shouldn't just say, well, I mean, you know, suffering's a part of life. I'll just hobble on. It's like, you know, go get it fixed. So, but we shouldn't arrange our entire lives like the point of life is to not suffer because there's no not suffering option. There's no no suffering option. So we talked about the fact that there's three possible reasons for suffering and we talked about that one could be the result of doing wrong or there's three that could be the result of doing wrong chastisement which is God's punishment of the saved the wrath of God God's punishment of the unsaved or the natural consequences of sin in general then we mentioned that suffering can be a direct result of doing good so you could be persecuted by God himself let's say persecuted you could be uh, inflicted we might say or the suffering could be coming from God Himself in order to amplify the effect of your goodness. It could come from the world, that's persecution. It could come from Satan, also persecution, temptation, testing, or the natural consequences of sin 
in general. And then lastly, suffering can be a result of time and chance. So we don't need to be spooky and say that everything that happens in our life is spiritual warfare. Everything has spiritual implications because we're spiritual creatures. Not everything has a spiritual cause. Do you understand the difference? Everything has spiritual implications or consequences, we might say, in a way. Spiritual effects, right? It affects your spirit. You're troubled in your spirit. The honeycuts got no wreck on the way here. They're fine. I think it's just a fender bender or whatever. Not a big deal. Travis texted me. They'll be here in, in a little while. The car's still drivable. Okay. So we could look at that and we could assign a spooky cause to that and say that demons caused that person to run into them to keep Travis from being here because he's trying to stop what's going on in that class. Maybe. Maybe. Can't say for sure that that's what's ha not what's happening, but I don't think that's the most likely scenario. I think the most likely scenario is that humans make mistakes when they're driving, and this kind of thing happens if you drive enough. So we put that under the category of time and chance. Now, there could be a spiritual effect of that. So let's say that Travis allows it, him to get bitter against God because he got into a wreck. That's not going to happen. So it's a ridiculous example. But if he's like, God, why did you allow this to happen to me? Okay, well, now you just turned it into something that has, you know, the spiritual ramifications of it have nothing to do with the actual cause of it. People do that all the time. Something that just happens to you. They blame God for it like he's the source of it. It's like, well, I mean, you know, first of all, he's not the source of any sin. Um, he can be the source of, there's a weird quotation sometimes people get hung up on in the Old Testament where it says that um, God makes the light and creates darkness. He makes good and creates evil. And the, the idea is that evil stands juxtaposed to God as he creates good is more so the idea. But even if you want to take uh, the quotation in Exodus where it says that God turned from the evil he thought to do unto Israel, that word evil doesn't mean sin. God was totally within the right to wipe them all out if he wanted to. I mean, he gave all life, he can take all life away. So we are literally clay compared to him. It's like in the Old Testament where it talks about that the nations are as grass and grasshoppers before him. If it's immoral for God to wipe out the earth, then it's immoral for you to cut your lawn. You are only finitely better than the life that is the grass in your front yard. So who are you to end its life or to inhibit its growth in any way? Right? That's more of a moral problem, the Bible is saying, than it is for God to just turn off the switch, to unplug the simulation, if you will. I mean, for real, if you save quit your video game, <laughs> that is more immoral than for God to wipe out the entire planet. It's not a moral problem at all. Um, but anyway, so this week we're going to get into the reason for suffering. So number one, the reality for suffering, but then number two, the reality of suffering. Number two, the reason for suffering. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 13. Chapter 3 and verse 13. And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. We would like to disagree with that statement. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. I want to stop there for a second. We quote that a lot, that idea of be always ready to give an answer as an apologetic or soul-winning verse. It is not. Now, it has apologetic, soul-winning implications. But here's the context. The context is, you're doing right, and yet you're suffering. Why are you still so hopeful? And Peter says, have an answer. Have an answer for that. Sanctify God in your hearts, set Him apart, and have an answer for those who look on in your suffering and you're still hopeful, you're still faithful, and they look at you and go, why is that? Shouldn't you be bitter? Shouldn't you be resentful? Shouldn't you be angry? Shouldn't you be petty? Shouldn't you be wagging your fist at God? Why aren't you? Peter says, have an answer ready. And this explains to some extent why God allows suffering in the lives of his children, is it does, it does bear witness to the integrity of their spiritual character and therefore the reality of the God that they serve. And when you have an answer to the question of why are you suffering well, it glorifies God. And we need to have that answer at the ready. Let's keep going. 
verse 16, having a good conscience. Here's something about the conscience. I love the idea of the conscience. I think the conscience is fascinating. I went on a huge rabbit trail years ago about the conscience and the mind and the will and how they're all related and, and whatever. And it's, it never became a sermon. It just influenced many sermons. But it's an unbelievable thing that we have, the, the, the conscience, conscience, with knowledge. That's what it means. But the way to think about conscience, the way that Calvin, I'm quoting him lately because I'm reading his institutes. I'm not a Calvinist. Um, but one of the things he said about the conscience is that it is the integrity of the inner man, in a sense. It's the integrity of the heart. It's the heart's integrity. And I think that's exactly right. And when the Bible talks about strengthening your conscience, or their conscience is being defiled, it's they allow the integrity of their inner man to suffer. Having a good conscience, having integrity in your heart, in your, most, in your innermost being. And the thing about suffering is that's what it threatens. The target of suffering is not your body. The target of suffering, especially when it has an evil, it's emanating from an evil source. The target of that suffering is your conscience, your innermost being. That's what we might say the suffering really targets. And so the thing is you have to fortify your conscience against that suffering, having a good conscience. He says that, whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better, notice this, verse 17, for it is better if the will of God be so. So it's not always the will of God for you to suffer. But it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. That's pretty amazing. The idea would be that you could be suffering and you could be suffering and your suffering are in a vacuum completely equal. So on a scale of 1 to 10, you're a 7. On a scale of 1 to 10, you're a 7. But you're suffering because you're doing right and you're suffering because you're doing wrong. And it's clear, this is pretty clear just logically speaking, that that's better. That's better. And sometimes he says it's the will of God for you to suffer for well-doing. He says rather, of course, than for evildoing. You know, sometimes God delays the suffering of the evildoer. This is Asaph's observation. Asaph was frustrated because he's like, where's the punishment of the evildoer? They abound. There's no chains in their death. He's like, what's the deal? Okay, sometimes God delays their suffering. And we look at it and go, I mean, where's the justice, right? Of course, Asaph, he understood when he went into their sanctuary, went into the sanctuary, he said, then I understood their end. He says their feet are in slippery places, and he, he, was, he was exactly right. He got to the right place in that. But we can't necessarily judge the will of God by the presence or absence of suffering. Notice that. We can't necessarily divine, is God in this, is God not in this, by the presence or absence of suffering. So if the evil person did that, they would look at their actions and go, well, I mean, you know, there's no, you know why doesn't God just strike me down? Where's the lightning bolt thrown from, his, thrown from his throne? Pun intended, I guess. Pun unintended and then intended when I realized the pun was coming. But So where's the punishment, right? Where's the divine judgment? And there wasn't any. So the same is true for if I'm doing well. So I could do well and then suffer immediately. And then I go, this must not be God's will. It's like, no, no, no. Sometimes it is God's will for you to suffer in direct relation to the good that you're doing. So don't try to read into your suffering the will of God by its presence or its absence. All right, verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins. And that was a direct result of the will of God. He wrestled with that in the garden. If there be any other way, well, apparently there was no other way. He had to drink the dregs of sin. So he willingly accepted the suffering. Now, here's what we try to do. We try to avoid, mitigate, and eliminate the suffering. What we need to do is we need to voluntarily, listen to me, we need to voluntarily accept and adopt the suffering as we, as we pursue the will of God. Let's put it that way. So that, that's the goal. The goal is the will of God. Whatever God wants, that's the goal. And sometimes implicit in the choice to accept the will of God is the adoption of voluntary suffering. Jesus said, pick up your pillow. Pick up your cross and follow me. There's the willing, notice this, he's not forcing a cross on anybody. He didn't lay it on their shoulders. Think about the yoke, same thing. Take my yoke upon you. There's some suffering in bearing a yoke and pulling a load. 
And we can say, this is uncomfortable. Yes, but something is being done. You're plowing a field. And there's the idea there that, one, it's good for you to pull a yoke, by definition. It's good for you to adopt responsibility. But then, two, what are you doing? You're plowing up something that was heretofore hardened. So you're making the world, we might say, a better place. There's also the implication in that that you are helping to mitigate the effect of the fall. What was one of the effects of the fall? It was that the earth would become hardened. It would not easily yield her fruit. So there's a reason why Jesus didn't say these things lightly. So bear the oak, put some weight on your shoulders. That's your purpose. By the way, that's the purpose of Christ. He says, I came here to bear a yoke. Okay, he didn't come here to sit on a throne, sit back, and be fed grapes. We think that's the purpose of life. We think the purpose of life is to work just enough so that we don't have to work anymore. It's like, you realize how many miserable people there are, 80-year-olds who play tennis in the retirement facility, let's call it that, with the wide eyes, looking like they could experience death at any moment. Like, that's just not very clearly, that is clearly not what we were called to do. Man was created to work. Man was created to work. And yes, there is joy in leisure and all of that, but as a supplement to work, as an aid to work. Okay, so you're, you're made to carry a load. Jesus came to carry a load. You get in the yoke with Him. So that's part of the will of God for you, is to pull something, to bear responsibility. Then here's, here's something you could ask yourself. What kind of load are you carrying? How much of a load are you actually carrying? <clears throat> what are your responsibilities? Here's one reason why... So... Couples who are married are happier than single couples. Single couples. Yeah, well, that's true. So, so unmarried couples aren't as happy as married couples. And single people aren't as happy as those in couples. So we could go all the way to the bottom. Single people are happier if they're with someone. And then the people who are married are happier than the people who are unmarried. Okay. The ideal state relative to happiness for a married couple is to not have children. So if you want to experience the most marital happiness, do not have children. Now, here's the thing. Now, we, like, we know that. Now, here's the thing. That's like, that's like a survey of people's own you know, thoughts about themselves, especially while they're young. If you revisit that when they're older, their opinions change. Okay. Here's one reason why people who can have kids should have kids. Because you were not designed to sit back in infinite leisure and bathe in happiness. You were made to adopt responsibility. That's what you were made to do. So you were designed to do. And your happiness, your domestic felicity benefits no one else other than your little microcosm of two. That's it. You were made to carry a load not to simply experience happiness. And there is more meaning and purpose and value which are infinitely better, and we might say those things are more so akin to the domain of love than the domain of happiness. Sometimes happiness is found in, look, cocaine can make you happy for a very brief period of time, for a very few brief moments. Cocaine can make you feel exactly how you've always wanted to feel. It doesn't mean the purpose of life is to simulate. Really what that is, you think about it, it's a simulated form of happiness, and it's incredibly brief. And that's very sad that people get to the point where life, which because we talked about point number one, that suffering is a reality, that people have an escapist mentality where they're willing to become addicted to a substance that 99% of the time leaves them in constant pain. And eventually they have to take it as a medication just so they can feel normal, so they can feel baseline in the quote-unquote pursuit of, what is it really? Happiness. Like, that's really what it is in a sense. You could say that. So, you say, well, why, why should we bring kids into this world? Okay. It's not clear that not having children makes it better. So, what would be the case for that? What would be the case? I'm not saying this because of the crowd. I'm saying this because this is an obvious obvious implication, something I've actually been thinking about a lot, is if you state a problem and then your solution to the problem makes the problem worse, it's not a solution. So the problem is the world is a bad place. 
What's the solution to that? Less people? Less people is the solution? That makes it worse. You know what's funny is that the, the Western societies, Western-minded societies are realizing that. Japan is undergoing a population collapse. China's economy is imploding. It's absolutely imploding. Their real estate market is crumbling. Their commercial real estate was, was a fraud anyway. They're having to pump a ton of money into their economy. Part of the reason is because of their one-child policy. That's a big part of the reason. If China had just let people have kids, they would be the economic superpower that everybody's worried about, or at least they would have a better chance of being that. The U.S., if it wasn't for immigration and also for people pouring across our borders unfettered, would have the same exact problem. Population collapse is not a good thing. It destroys wealth because eventually you have a bunch of old people in a society and you have no young people to replace them. So you don't have enough young people, younger people, working age people to provide for the older people and the older people have all the wealth. And then when it's gone with them, it's pretty much gone. It's the exact way to mediocrity. And so people think, man, the world's such a bad place. It's like, here's how you make it worse. Stop having children. That's how you make it worse. That's how you make it. You think this is bad. Wait for population collapse to take place. There's a reason why God said, fill the earth. He was right. He was 100% right. And um, by the way, the world's richer than it's ever been. The world is more healthy than it's ever been. If you were going to pick a time and place to be born in the entire span of human history, you would choose if you were in your right mind to be born today. This is the time you would choose to be born if your metrics are health, wealth, and happiness. If those are your metrics, now is the time to be born. Are you going to be born in like the Middle Ages? Like, no. You want to be born in 16, 1700s and die of tuberculosis at 40? Like, is that really what you want? You want to die? You want to be born before the discovery of penicillin? <laughs> like, I don't think so. Before anesthesia, uh, what is it? Uh, anesthesia. I was going to say anesthetics. <laughs> uh, what is that? All right, we got to keep going. So, considering what we've already discussed, we can conclude that suffering is universal and it's just a part of existence. However, we should not then conclude that how I live my life does not matter. That's the bad conclusion. So if the idea is you're going to suffer either way, the nihilist could say, well, then what does it matter how you live if you're just going to suffer either way? And we've said that already a little bit about, well, performing an action that makes the suffering worse if you're critiquing the suffering is not an answer. So how could that possibly be a solution? But the Bible says, but if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. So the idea is that the evil man suffers, but he will not find happiness in his suffering. The righteous man also suffers, but he can find happiness in his suffering. So suffering is the common denominator between the two, but happiness is not. Happiness is found in suffering for well-doing, not suffering for evil-doing. So choose why you suffer. You might as well suffer for well-doing because there can still be joy and peace and happiness in your suffering if it's for well-doing. But that same happiness is not promised to the one suffering because he did wrong. Let's look at these relative to the categories we discussed last week. Chastisement, for example, or relational suffering. That's really what chastisement is. So if my child transgresses against me as a parent, they disobey me. So I introduce some form of suffering into their life. So that could be time out in the corner, right? It could be a deprivation of some kind, taking the thing away. It could be corporal punishment of a very appropriate and uh, measured uh, response, let's say. So that's, that's what that is. That's relational suffering, chastisement. Okay. So if I'm suffering because I did something wrong to someone or to God as a person, then it's very possible I'm under chastisement and therefore happiness is not guaranteed during the suffering of my chastisement. Why? Because there's no happiness outside of a trusting and obedient relationship with God. So if I have, listen to me, if I have purposely through my sin injured my relationship with Him and I'm suffering as a result, I should not expect to be happy in that suffering. And in fact, my suffering is designed to some extent to push happiness out into another domain. Essentially, what I'm being encouraged to do is to make things right so the suffering can go away. 
so that then I can get back where I need to go. That's what you tell a child who's in trouble. I mean, that's what you do with the kids in your, in your class. It's like, well, as soon as you uh, correct the wrong, say you're sorry, amend the behavior, this ends. Your punishment's not indefinite. Your chastisement doesn't just go on forever. Like, only a tyrant would do that. Only an overbearing father would do that. So the suffering ends when you repent and make things right. Um, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So once we confess, we are forgiven, and the chastisement is over. And so then we can expect what we were lacking. All right? But then if we talk about positional suffering or the wrath of God, so this is like top down. This is God punishing the lost. If I'm suffering as a result of sin in my lost condition, then it's possible God is pouring out His wrath on me. And then here's a question, should I expect happiness in that suffering? So if God has filled up the measure of His wrath against me, pouring it out on me, should I expect to be happy in that suffering? The answer is obviously no. A lost person is abiding under the wrath of God. The wrath of God is not lifted until he's converted. There's no happiness during suffering. So if God is, again, his wrath accumulates slowly over a long period of time and then is poured out quickly. That's generally how the Bible depicts it. So it's hard for the people in Revelation, for example, right, who are uh, sick and they're crying out to God, begging the rocks to fall on them as they're experiencing the seven vials full, the wrath of God or the last vial, the seventh vial being poured out. This is the wrath of God poured out on all men to go, I am so glad that I'm going through this. Like no one would say that. There's only one category of person who in their suffering can logically or rationally say for good reason, I'm happy despite my suffering. And that's the person who's suffering for well-doing. So yes, suffering is a constant. No matter how you live your life, you're going to suffer. You're going to get sick. Parts of you are going to hurt. Family members are going to die. They're going to experience financial hardship. No matter how you live your life, now you could say, well, then who cares how I live my life? You should care how you live your life because one way of living makes the suffering worse, which that's not ideal, unnecessarily. Why suffer more than you have to? But another idea is, what the Bible is telling us here, that there's only one way of living that promises you meaning, purpose, value, happiness, love, joy, peace, whatever, the fruits of the Spirit in the middle of your suffering. And that's suffering because you're doing the right thing. So if I'm suffering for right, I can be happy in the suffering. Why? Because happiness is not the absence of suffering. Happiness is not the absence of suffering. So, for example, um, there are people who experience like a runner's high. And I've gotten into running over the past few months, and, and I, I don't like it the first, you know, half, or really first three quarters. But that last little bit, and then after, I mean, you feel good. And you, if you feel good like all day, especially if you do it in the morning, you feel good like all day. Like, you, I can just, it's funny. Like after I run, I can just stand still and go, I feel great. You know, I'm not the kind of person, one, who can stand still, two, whoever thinks about how they feel. You just kind of do what you need to do. That's the way that men are. But I'll just stand there and go, I feel so good right now. But the only reason why I'm experiencing that happiness is actually because of the suffering directly. That's the odd thing enough. If I don't voluntarily adopt the suffering, I won't find that state of we might say something akin to maybe physical happiness. Um, so I want to get into this uh, real quick. we got about eight minutes. The response to suffering. So we talked about the reality of suffering, the reason for suffering. So I need to be suffering for the right reason. That's something that I maybe can control at least a little bit. I can be doing well, and if I suffer for it, I can still be happy. But three, I want to talk about the response to suffering. Look at chapter 4 and verse 12, 1 Peter 4, 12. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as of some strange thing happened unto you. <laughs> That's the way that we view suffering. What is this? This is strange. This is odd. Why is this happening? He says, don't think it strange. Really, we should think it common. And I, I would say, I might have mentioned this last week, but it's the prideful mind that thinks it deserves not to suffer. 
It's the prideful mind that views suffering as an intruder. What are you doing here? You don't belong in my life. It's like, why? It's like, well, because I'm a good person. It's like, well, one, define good. Like, what exactly do you mean good? And of what quality, of what quality, of what quality is your goodness that you think it would cause you to live a life that doesn't experience suffering? I mean, if Jesus Christ's goodness could not lead him to avoid or completely eliminate all suffering from his life, why would you think that your petty form of goodness would do that? So we shouldn't view suffering as strange. We should view it as common. And that's not, look, you should not be so naive. Let's just put it that way. You should not be so naive that you view suffering as something that, one, is avoidable, or two, somehow uh, comes into your life and doesn't belong there. It's like everybody suffers. And that's something that you really have to come to grips with. And a lot of people enter out into the world naive. There was, I was at a high school graduation, which, by the way, I hate high school graduations. I hate them. I'm going to edit that out because I don't want them to know that. But I, I literally hate them. I hate going in. They're so long. Oh, gosh. The so only thing I hate worse than high school graduations or weddings. No offense. I hate weddings as well. They're so, even the short ones, it's like, what are we doing here? We get it. You love each other. Stop kissing. Let's get out of here. The food's always crappy at the reception. I don't like cake. I'm not a cake person. If there were cookies everywhere, I'd be more akin to go to more weddings, but I hate weddings. I like funerals better than I like weddings. I don't know what that says about me. It just seems to have more meaning. It's just like my presence here means more at a funeral than it does at a wedding. You'd be just as happy if I wasn't here at your wedding. You wouldn't look out and go, where's Brother Zach? You'd be like, I'm about to kiss this person. Like, you know, and then go on your honeymoon. You're about to go on vacation, you know. So, uh, but I hate high school graduations. I was at one at Gainesville High School, and there's 10 million people there. And the valedictorian gets up, and she's just going on and on and on, and basically just oozing the idea, I am so smart. And it was just, it was disgusting. And she's like, She said, essentially, I've got maybe the exact quote written down somewhere, but she said something to the effect of, I know that all of my dreams and designs are going to come true. She's like, I know that all of my dreams and all of my designs are going to come true. And basically what she was saying is, I am so innately good. That was obviously the idea. I am so innately good, so inherently smart. I have these gifts, talents, and abilities that make success and happiness not just likely, inevitable. There is no other option. And it didn't feel like a word of faith statement. Like, I profess, I'm projecting this out into the universe. It wasn't like that. It was just like, this is two plus two is four. I'm amazing. I'm incredible because mommy tells me that I am. And so I'm, the inevitable consequence is me walking out those double doors. Instant success. Okay, really smart girl. Incredibly naive. And those are the kind of people who suffer the worst. Those are the kind of people who suffer the worst. When you go out into this world that is really, really, really unforgiving, doesn't want to budge, doesn't want to move, it's a giant brick wall and the naive run into it head long. You should not be naive. And I would say that a good Christian is not naive. You can be optimistic, you can be hopeful, you can be trusting, you can be all those things, but you cannot be naive. Because the how could you read the Old Testament and walk away naive? Do you see the suffering of Abraham? Do you see the suffering of Joseph? The second story in the Bible is a brother who kills his other brother. And the other brother was like the greatest guy ever. Abel died. He gave the perfect sacrifice. God said, great job. Great job. King's like, and kills him. So the Bible is not naive. Christians are naive oftentimes. This entire generation of Christians right now is incredibly naive. Because they think that suffering just doesn't belong in their life. It's like suffering is inevitable. Okay, but here's the variable that we need to control, and we'll end on this. You need to control your response to suffering. I don't mean the well-doing. I mean your response to it. 1 Peter 4.12, think it not strange, verse 13, but rejoice, he says. What? Rejoice when you suffer, specifically in this context for well-doing. Inasmuch as ye are, what is this? partakers of Christ's sufferings. So rejoice because you are suffering like Christ suffered. Hey, better to suffer like Christ than like Judas. It's better to suffer like Christ than to suffer like Judas. 
that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. So there's an idea. There's a life that avoids well-doing because they're afraid of suffering. They bury, they bury their talent in the earth. But when the master shows up, they will not be glad. There's the idea that there's one, an end to suffering, a cessation of suffering. But two, that there can be gladness in the voluntary adoption of suffering as you do well because you're following in the footsteps of Jesus. And then we, when he appears, you will be glad for it. So then the life that says, I don't want to adopt any responsibility. I don't want to bury heavy yoke. I don't want to uh, do the will of God because I might suffer. That way of being might eliminate some forms of suffering in your life. And you might avoid them or you might delay them. But when you see Jesus, you won't be glad. That's the idea. And that makes exactly, I mean, that makes exact sense. That's the exact right idea because Jesus is the goal. He's the ideal, we might say. He's the ideal man. And here, here's the idea. When you see Jesus, you'll realize what you were supposed to be. That's the idea. When you see him, it's not just that you compare yourself to him and you fall on your knees and you weep and wail. You, you don't say, oh, how great is him. What, what do people say? They say, oh, woe is me. You realize in the moment what you were always meant to be but weren't. He's the ideal. That's the comparison. It's like that first practice I showed up at the Barons. These guys are unbelievable baseball players. I've been playing rec ball. I think I'm pretty good, made some all-star teams, walk up to that first practice, and these guys are throwing the ball around the diamond, doing double plays and stuff, things I had never seen in rec ball. All of a sudden, they're the ideal, and I realized what I was supposed to be. I was supposed to be that, and I wasn't. And I said as I walked up to the field that day, woe is me. So when you see him, that's what we will say as well. So let's go to, real quick, we'll finish reading this, we'll be done. Verse 14, if ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part, watch this, he is glorified. So one of the purposes of suffering is that God glorifies himself through it. And you say, well, how unkind or megalomaniacal or selfish of God to glorify himself through man. Here's a question. What else is goodness itself supposed to do? There's an idea. So here's one definition of God. This is more so a secular definition of God, but I'm going to pull this from philosophy for a second, which the idea is that God is the highest good that you could possibly conceive of. And that's probably a description of him. I wouldn't say a definition. I'd say it's a description of him. The way I would say it is that if good exists, then God exists because then God, it is from God that all good emanates. And the Bible says that. I think it's James, right? That says every good and perfect gift. Is it James? Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. What that means is that God is goodness itself. Question. Should goodness itself not glorify, magnify, expand itself in the world? Okay, but sometimes that requires my suffering. Sometimes it requires my suffering for goodness itself to grow in the world. And when we look at God and we wag our fist and we say, why is this happening to me? God says, so I can make the world better than it would be otherwise. And if I rebel against that, then like Proverbs says, I am limiting the Holy One of Israel. See, we don't think about that when we suffer. We say, this is not good for me. The suffering of Jesus was not good for Jesus in a vacuum. But it was the method by which goodness itself redeemed the world from sin. So here's the thing. If I want God's goodness to emanate through my life, if I want Him to glorify... See, here's the thing. We have this idea that God glorifying Himself in the world is just like making Him look good and all that kind of stuff. It's like... It is that, but it's more than that because you have to take into account the nature of God. Or you might ask the question, why would God or what would necessitate God glorifying himself in the world? Okay, if God is goodness itself, how could it be otherwise? It can't be otherwise. 
And who are we to say, no, God, do not make the world better? No, God, don't do that at my expense. No, here's what I'm supposed to do. I can get down on my knees in the garden. I can say, God, is there any other way? God says, there's no other way. God, just for clarification, is there any other way? There's no other way. Last time. God, is there any other way? There's no other way. Okay. Then I voluntarily adopt the suffering that goodness itself might expand in the world. In fact, we might could say this. There is no such thing as the expansion of goodness that does not necessitate the suffering of those who would place themselves as the agents of the spread of that goodness. If you were going to be the kind of person who's going to allow God to use you to make the world more of what it's supposed to be and less of what it's not supposed to be, it will necessitate your suffering to some extent. But like he just said, when you see him, you'll be glad. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us five stars and a glowing review and make sure you're following the podcast so you get new episodes sent directly to your phone every week. Don't forget to connect with us on social media at the Zach Evans Podcast. God bless.